Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Um, You know what, as Yogi Berra would say, it's deja vu all over again. It's election day in Georgia, a runoff election that pits Republican Brad Raffensperger against John Barrow, the Democrat, for Secretary of State, and a PSC race between Lindy Miller and uh, the incumbent Chuck Eaton. We're going to talk about those races. We'll talk a little bit about what we're seeing in the way of turnout out there and a lot more on today's edition of Political Rewind. Joining me in the studio, the boss, the editor of the Atlanta (laughs) Journal-Constitution, Kevin Riley. Good to be here, Bill. Thank you for coming in. Uh, Right across from you at the table is Sam Olins, the former chair of the Cobb County Commission, the attorney general of the state of Georgia, and now out there with a shingle out, practicing law for Dettons, the world's largest law firm. How you doing, Sam? Doing great. Thank you, Bill. Um, right next to you, uh, we have Audrey Haynes, Professor Audrey Haynes, who teaches political science at the University of Georgia. As Sam Olins noted, Audrey, wearing your red blazer and a black sweater underneath it. Yes, go dogs <laughs> forever. We won. Yeah, okay. Uh, Congratulations. Um, And and the Athens contingent is is well represented at the table right next to you. Uh, Athens native, Michael Thurman, the CEO of DeKalb County, uh, the former superintendent of DeKalb County Schools, former state legislator, former labor commissioner, former U.S. Senate candidate, Democratic U.S. Senate candidate. We could take the whole show talking about (laughs) everything that you've done over the years, Mike. It's difficult for some people to keep a good job, you know, which is my problem. But uh, delighted to be with you, Bill. Uh, Let me start. I I mentioned because, Mike, you are a historian in as well as the jobs you've done in government. And Audrey, of course, you teach political science. Why do we even have runoff elections in Georgia? There are obviously many states in which uh, a candidate who wins the plurality is elected. Why? What's the history behind that here? Well, and as a person who's actually was involved in one statewide runoff in the Democratic primary and a runoff for a state representative back in the 80s in Athens, well, first of all, it predates the 1965 Voting Rights Act. So it was a part of a political strategy or at least system that predates 1965 and goes back to what was known as the white primaries. And I think practically— Uh, prior to when we didn't have a two-party system. We had a one-party system. It allowed various factions within the Democratic Party and to, number one, choose a elected, choose someone to lead, but also it required some consensus building. It was back in the Halicon days when politicians, it was not a sin to build consensus. And primaries, uh, the way they play out, forces a candidate, maybe the first or second finisher, to reach to the other candidates who may have been involved in a primary or early election to try to seek their support. So it's, to me, a consensus builder. Okay. Um, in, in the, but in the years since then, Audrey, uh, runoffs have been used successfully to marginalize minority candidates uh, to assure uh, that, for instance, a white Democrat would uh, uh, win over an African-American Democrat because of a runoff in a primary setting. Well, runoffs will tend to uh, lend support to whatever majority is the majority at the time. So, I mean, there are two different ways to think about it. One might be in that negative sense that uh, you are having an effect of keeping a group uh, from participating. In fact, you said earlier we had talked about uh, runoffs, who turns out in runoffs. Uh, Minority groups tend to have a Uh, a much uh, lower turnout when it comes to a runoff. Runoffs are just low turnout events anyhow for a whole host of reasons, including fatigue, um, you know, just the operations of the party. Uh, In fact, I'll just mention that the Republican Party got their absentee ballots out very late. 
I mean, I noticed the one that we got at home. The the Democrats had gotten theirs out very early in advance. Um, but it also, on the positive side, on Democratic theory, one reason to have a runoff is when you don't have that absolute mandate and that majority, it creates an opportunity where perhaps you can build more consensus and the end result of the election is one that doesn't have as many conformity costs more. Were you in a runoff in 2000 when you ran for U.S. Senate? Were you I saying? was in a runoff Who was in, in the runoff? 1998 when I right ran for labor commissioner with, against state senator Steve Henson. Okay. Oh, oh, labor commissioner. Sam Oldens, you're nodding at that. No, I had a runoff uh, my first election for A.J. Yeah. And, okay, so, Sam Olins, you came in looking at the final numbers, I think, with the, of early voting, and, and we— because the vote is underway right now, and by the way, the reports we're getting from polling places is that uh, it's light, Kevin. The turnout yeah, uh, is not particularly uh, uh, big. <laughs> the important thing is we have enough extension cords out there, from what I understand. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Since, since we had polling places uh, that were without extension cords and couldn't power up their machine. Sam, this uh, what we have saw in the early voting numbers throughout last week was that they seemed to favor Republicans, didn't they? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, historically, one would say that Democrats have had a harder time coming once again into runoff, and it seems to be the case so far. But let's acknowledge what Audrey said, too, which is uh, turnout looks to be abysmal today. It looks to be abysmal in the advanced voting. I'm, I'm not sure who wins when people don't show up and vote. Well, and let me just mention, too, I think there are some concerns. I, I, I checked two sources before coming in today. One of them um, is on the Republican side and one of them is on the Democratic side. On the Democratic side, they are saying they've been targeting. They have been quietly working hard. Canvassing activities have still been going on um, and they haven't quit. On the Republican side, one of uh, the uh, people who is working on a, a particular campaign outside of the dark money that's been dropped has said, you know, we're actually concerned about our own turnout. So, so, so um, uh, uh, Kevin, what are the um, what, when you look at a light turnout? Sam Olin says you just really can't predict what what's going to happen. The question has been, and you asked it before we went on the air of our other panelists, um, has Stacey Abrams, who did so well in coming in second in that governor's race, mobilized such a huge turnout. Has she done all that she can to get voters out for uh, John Barrow, which you would think would be an important mission considering the Secretary of State's office has been the focus of so much controversy in terms of how elections are run through that office? Well, yeah, I I wanted to know what people thought because uh, we talked last week about how amazing it was we were spending so much energy talking about the Secretary of State's race, which normally is sort of a little bit under the radar and, and had emerged as the key office in the state. And uh, she has ta had taken that position of we're, you know, she's not challenging this election because she doesn't bring Brian Kemp as the rightful governor, but because every vote matters and voting and, you know, she wants to claim that position. I just wonder where that went. Did that? Mike? Well, <laughs> people have the amazing ability to move on quickly <laughs> from these elections. I mean, having been on both sides and it's shocking how quickly the electorate will move away from this is the biggest, most important election in the history of all mankind to look, I got to pay my rent. It's Christmas. I got to go shop. Amen. All of these things move off the radar screen almost immediately. And some of us who are inside the political bubble fail to understand and appreciate that. Uh, also, it's just a fatigue. I'll be honest with you. I, I, I have no desire, appetite for any more negative commercials and the ones that ran over the last two weeks were very disheartening to me. And I, there's a general feeling through the public that enough is enough. Let's cast this vote. Move on. Sam, um, you, when you were in your runoff, how hard was it for you to energize to go that was additional? Was it, it was a three-week runoff period, I assume. How hard is it as a candidate to get back out there and keep the energy up? So I had a sort of special fact pattern, thanks to the AJC. Uh, they ran a very negative story against my opponent in the runoff. And had they wanted to do 10 times more, they could have, but they correctly knew that ended the race. Uh, and uh, What year was this? Oh, ask me tough questions. 14. So it would okay. have been in 2013. And uh, the story was very 
accurate. It was, you know, the political insiders knew all about that particular issue concerning my opponent in the runoff. And, and candidly, that took all the air out of his campaign. So I had a, a very different fact pattern. Okay. So I, I don't remember exactly what that was all about, but apparently no one at the table wants to talk about it. Uh, so that means that you didn't feel uh, you were you had a fairly easy run those last three weeks. Absolutely. And what about you, Mike? Well, you run the primary planning to have a runoff. So really, if you create a strategy around it, it's almost impossible to get 50 plus one particularly if you have three or four candidates in a primary. So your strategy has to include that will be a runoff. And so you factor that in and you use that as a springboard. You just know you got three more weeks to go because there's, it's, it's rare that you get to that 50 plus right. one. And right. the DPG, I think they anticipated a runoff um, and were— Democratic Party of Georgia. Yes, and they uh, were very well organized and prepared for it. That's why they were—I mean, they got their, they got their runoff— um, they got their absentee ballots for the runoff out before the election was actually uh, called. Bottom line, Bill, is can you get your people back out? Sure. You don't have to convince anybody of anything. You identify who voted for you in the primary, and the challenge is how many of those people can you get to come back? But that's exactly why, Kevin, uh, the question that you raised is so pertinent. Has Stacey Abrams helped energize the voters who were so enthusiastic about going to the polls for her? Especially given the uh, all the criticisms the Democrats made of Brian Kemp as attorney general and all the talk about, you know, how the attorney general should conduct his or herself and everything. You, you mean, I'm sorry, you mean secretary of state? Secretary of state. Yeah, I had yeah, attorney general said, on my mind yeah. because the former attorney general sitting across right. from me. Sorry about that. Yeah. But I mean, that to me, we, we all agreed how important suddenly that office became and then it just sort of melted away. And, and for clarity, I'm sorry. I mean, clearly, I worked really hard those three yeah. weeks. Yeah. And there was also a runoff for governor, a Democratic runoff for governor at the time with uh, the current governor and Karen Handel. So we all right. worked really hard. But frankly, the fact pattern was was different as it related to my race. Uh, Audrey, what are we what are we uh, looking at today as we look at these two candidates, uh, Raffensperger, the Republican, and Barrow, the Democrat? What how much difference will there be in terms of how they'll run the Secretary of State's office? Well, that's a that's an interesting question. I thought you were going to ask me more about the the dynamics, and I was going to say Barrow has a lot of name recognition, Raffensperger. He's got a lot of placards out there, but a lot of people don't know him very well. They don't know him that well within the Republican Party. Um, and uh, in terms of expectations, well, uh, both of them, I would say, are pretty in the middle. I well, mean, let me stick with his question yeah. about who's going to about about the dynamics of the yeah. race. Barrow was a uh, uh, he was so successful as a member of the the uh, U.S. House as a Democrat that Republicans had to finally get rid of him because they kept moving the district lines to try to assure he would not be reelected. He he beat him a couple times and finally the Republicans did get him. But the point is he had enormous or, or enormous maybe an exaggeration. He was well thought of in a big swath of Georgia, especially starting up I think, yep. basically northeast central and coming down toward the coast. So you would think that given his name recognition in that big area and his popularity, that might give him certain advantages, but it doesn't feel like that's the way it's playing out uh, well, right now. He he can he knows a lot of people. He has a lot of contacts and he works hard. I will tell you that I, I've worked with John personally. He was actually um, a visiting practitioner in our program and taught a class at the University of Georgia. And what everyone uh, recognized was that he does the work He's very affable, and he's raised some money, whereas um, Raffensperger has, has raised some money, but he's taken a lot of money out of his own pocket to run this campaign. Well, I want to ask the poli two, our two politicians in the room, Bill. I mean, Who Raff are they? <laughs> Raffensperger has been virtually unavailable to the media, and he skipped the debate. So, do you, I mean, what's your—is that a, the kind of person we want in that office? I, I think or? he's run a horrible campaign. I mean, just— from outside looking in. And full disclosure, John Bear and I attended Clark Central High School in Athens. So I've known, we've known each other since we were teenagers. But I think what Raffensperger has done, though, he's riding the tide 
of Republican anger or dislike for Democrats, John Barrett, i.e. Stacey Abrams. I think it was somewhat smart that Stacey didn't put herself out there too much because in politics there's an action and a reaction. And we kind of saw that play out in the governor's race. And one of the things I learned the hard way, uh, running for state representative three times before I won, you turn out your base, but there's always a reaction to the action. And so in turning out your base, the thing you have to avoid is also turning out the opposition. And oftentimes, the same energy you use to turn out your base actually reverberates in turning out the opposition for your opponent. So you have to be very, very careful how you play that when you bring in third parties and inject them in a race. You know, and it's questionable. It's like with um, with uh, Brian Kemp and Trump. Obviously, Trump energized the base, but he also energized Democratic voters as well. So you make the call when you're in a political situation like that. So, Sam, I'm curious about something. David Perdue... Uh, has a robocall out there that went out, uh, I guess, maybe last night, maybe first thing this morning. I'm not sure of the exact timing. And what he says in that is this. Make no mistake about it. Liberal Democrats outside of Georgia are spending millions of dollars to steal this race. If they win, we'll see more frivolous lawsuits to overturn solid elections in our state. What do you think of that kind of messaging coming out from our junior U.S. senator? It's red beat. I mean, frankly, we have frivolous lawsuits already. Uh, the uh, one by uh, Stacey Abrams is asking a federal judge to take over our election system, uh, repeal the U.S. Supreme Court decision in Shelby County, and totally disregard statutory law that gives a lot of authority to county boards of elections. Um, I, I think the, the big issue, as we talk about the Secretary of State race, so Bill will then growl at me, is the newspaper needs to immediately after the election start talking about which new voting system is Georgia going to acquire because we cannot continue to have Diebold. It makes no sense to be having paper. We need a system that is both electronic with a paper backup. I hope Greg Bluestein's listening because Sam just gave him an assignment. I thought I was the editor of the paper, but okay, Sam. And, and I would agree. That is that is absolutely well, true. Okay. But we, we already, regardless of who wins this election, we do know that the commission is already in place and has been working on looking at a new voting system. It was put in place uh, by the Secretary of State, by Brian Kemp and his office, and they are looking at the alternatives to the Diebold machines that we're all familiar with by now. And uh, they are looking at systems that would leave a paper trail. But here's what is interesting about what uh, people are voting on between Raffensperger uh, and Barrow, at least in one instance. Barrow is saying that he would like to put paper ballots into play. Uh, go back to the old system where you would punch out, and here comes the hanging chads, you'd punch your candidate and they would be fed into an optical scanner. He believes that system is um, hack-proof. Raffensperger is saying, oh, let's get machines that leave a paper trail. So there is that difference between them, and it is not insignificant. The um, And so I think that's one of the things that Again, we haven't hit, had, Kevin, much chance to hear that debate out in public because Raffensperger hasn't been there. Right. I mean, that's why I asked my question. I'm, I'm just going to see if Sam will talk about it. I mean, strategically, why would the guy do that? I mean, why not, why not say, you know, participate in the debate? Why not say what you're going to do? Well, Mike, presumably because he thinks he can win without that. Well, I, I'm, I became the Labor Commissioner of Georgia because my Republican opponent refused to debate me at an Atlanta press club. I event. wouldn't debate you. Well, no, he didn't show up. And so, beautiful young lady, Maria supporter. So they were going to cancel my debate. And it's a low-profile race, and you get a chance to be on statewide TV, you got to have it. So what he thought was that they were going to cancel the debate. But Maria stepped in, and Atlanta Press Club got a Thurman rule. If you don't show up, the other opponent gets to go anyway. Yeah. So I was on statewide TV for about 30 minutes talking about everything I wanted to talk yeah, about. Yeah, the same thing happened when Raffensperger was not at the, uh, the debate a, a week or so ago. They went ahead and had John Barrow talk for uh, 15 minutes, I think. But, Audrey, let me go back but to it, this. But if it had been televised, 
it would have had a lot more impact. Yeah, I mean, it was only, that's right. It wasn't. It was uh, streamed yes. uh, rather than televised. Um, Audrey, let me go back to that question about the Purdue robocall, though. Here's a candidate. Here's a, a senator who's going to be who is already beginning to think about what his election strategy is going to be for 2020. Is this really? You really want to hear your junior U.S. senator say that Democrats are stealing the election? It strikes me. I I get what Sam Olins is saying. It's red meat for the base. But is it is it a is it how you want to be perceived by the entire state? Well, in 2020, it's going to be an interesting election. It's going to, there are going to be different dynamics. He, he is probably not quite certain who his opponent is going to be. If you look at his, uh, if you look at the kinds of coverage that Senator Perdue has gotten, and I will say I've met Senator Perdue once. He was a very affable, um, personable individual in that setting. He did not try to take away my iPhone when I was trying to take a picture at that moment. <laughs> but, um, you know, if you look at his record, he, he hasn't had what you would consider an outstanding legislative record in the Senate, um, even though they've been in the majority. Uh, if you look at data on leadership, um, they, they place him on a diagram like sort of on the bottom, and they also place him in terms of ideology on the far right. All right. I want to park for the time being a conversation about Purdue's campaign in 2020. I appreciate that there's well, a lot we'll be able to dig into, so yes. thank you for that. But I want to go back to this other uh, uh, question. Kevin, um, and here's why I think it's more than just a minor issue. People in this state and in other states around the country where they've had problems or controversies around voting already have little enough faith in how election processes play out. They, the integrity of elections is under fire in Georgia as it is in many places. To what extent should we hold our elected officials responsible for the language they use when they talk about the opposition and say they're stealing the election, doesn't it further undermine our faith that the process is honest? Well, I think it's a dangerous thing on all sides when, when candidates yeah. do that. Yeah, I mean, I'm not and, suggesting and this is just it. a Republican issue. And um, we have got, I mean, this is what I think. Georgia, if we look at 2020, is likely to be one of the most important states in the in the presidential election. Fair statement. I mean, as a former Ohioan, I can tell you that it looks that way to me. And I think the last thing we need is to follow it up or to look bad or make it look like a circus. You know, uh, we, we need to have a system that everyone knows how it's working. Everyone is clear with why and that politicians are about getting votes and convincing voters, not arguing about how they're counted. Uh, but, but, go ahead, but, Sam. Look, or the, Mike. The, Mike, you go. Uh, uh, Look, the robocall was, was was allegedly last night with our junior senator, but there's been plenty of downright inappropriate comments made by both political parties this election uh, season. I agree. I, I think we can and, agree. And, and I think the press and the public have both gotten immune to the constant inappropriate attacks. And I think until John Q. Voter says enough, just as Mike said earlier, I'm tired of, of seeing the negative commercials. You know, I never ran a negative commercial. Never. Neither did I. So I'm no. ballot six times. Never ran a negative commercial. But I certainly held the last election. I was told I was responsible for dead children in Deekfax custody. Never saw a single article take him to task for that statement because they thought he was nowhere going to be close to me election day. But those comments are so out of bounds. Someone has to start calling it. Well, and think back now, 2016, our president just out and out accused the entire system of being corrupt and fraudulent. And so this is just a replay of that rhetoric, and it's in both parties. I think it's unfortunate. There is a role to be played to ensure that elections are fair and free and uh, honest, because we have had a history, not just in Georgia, but all over this country, of people who would try to steal elections. Look in North Carolina. So mm -hmm. we have to have a process to ensure that. But the rhetoric should be very, 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 very restrained as that process plays out and when it plays out. And I've been in an election contest, but 
I recall we said, look, it's not even about me getting elected and winning this race. It's about ensuring fairness in future races. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, we've got to get to a break, but I do have to say that uh, Sam Olins and Michael Thurman are two guys who, over the years, we've covered them, uh, Kevin, and uh, they are probably two of the more, uh, uh, their integrity as candidates has never been questioned. They both run positive campaigns over there. It's probably why they both uh, get to, you know, why we love having them on Political Rewind. That's got to be the reason. Well, I think maybe politics has passed me by. I feel like a relic. I, I really do. I'm part of something. I, I really do. Something from the past. Because that's not the way the game gets played in 2018. Now, I, I agree with Mike. There's too few of us that try and stay above yeah. the fray. Well, maybe you're what's needed now. All right. Well, uh, maybe. But right now what's needed is a break because I'm late to get to our first one. This is Political Rewind. And a final word about what you mean to me. He was the most decent man in public life it was ever my privilege to know. And I've traveled many miles. He wanted to make it a better world. Reached for many hands. And that's what he did. God bless you all. The nation celebrates the life of George H.W. Bush. Join us for special coverage of the state funeral of the 41st president from NPR News. Join us for NPR's live coverage starting at 11 a.m. here on GPB. Think about all the time you've spent with GPB during 2018 and what these moments mean to you. As you support the organizations that matter to you during this season of giving, I hope you'll include GPB. Before the year comes to a close, do your part to keep GPB strong in the year ahead. Go to gpb.org and click Donate to make your tax-deductible year-end gift or call 800-222-4788. From all of us at GPB, thank you for your support and happy holidays. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Uh, During the break, uh, Tom Faust says that the entire control room is trying to figure out what's going on with Facebook Live today. Excuse me. I know there are an awful lot of you out there who like to follow the show on Facebook Live. We've been have, and if you do, you know that we've been having some significant issues uh, on recent shows. I apologize for that. They, we all think that's awful because we love having you be able to follow us that way. We're doing our best to try to figure out whether it's something about us, whether it's just the Facebook Live platform, which can be a little bit shaky at times. Uh, but we really do. Are, we're sorry about that. You're, and, you're blaming Mark Zuckerberg. It sounds like. <laughs> Either that or the Boyle advisory. Exactly. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, let's real quickly talk about the Public Service Commission race that's on the ballot today as well. Um, and, and I'd like to do this, Audrey, because here's a race that will have an enormous impact on the state, either Chuck Eaton, the Republican incumbent who's already served two terms, uh, or the Democrat, Lindy Miller, will win that seat. And, um, of course, in addition to all the other utilities that they will have some regulation powers over, the biggest one of all is the uh, uh, new new construction, the additions to Plant Vogel, which is already billions of dollars over its expected cost, way late. And really, that campaign in many ways comes down to what one of them, the Democrat, Lindy Miller, saying, I don't ever want customers to have to pay for all of this. And Chuck Eaton saying, well, in reality, at a certain point, it is only responsible and reasonable to expect that there will be payments made by customers to cover this. So, you know, when we're talking about voters, I think there's a large portion of the the voting electorate today that will be going in and they really don't even know very much about the PSC race. Um, they have seen some negative ads. Uh, Chuck Eaton's had more ads running than Lindy Miller, so they may be they may be more familiar with his name, and they may end up voting straight party anyhow. Uh, so it, it probably, most likely, the Barrow and Raffensperger race will pull in more people than this race, and there may be even some roll off because of it. But most people don't see a huge amount of difference between the two candidates because they don't know very much about the two candidates. And those who do, again, are more likely going to be voting their party. I agree. Uh, uh, the professor is right. And uh, it's, it's a damn ballot race. But there's been some energy. One of the more uh, interesting uh, aspects of it is, was it Debbie Dooley? Yeah. <laughs> Actually yeah. came out in support of uh, Lindy. The Democrat, I think that's news. What do you think, Sam? 
Oh, it's definitely news, but she she is on the record opposing the nuclear power, opposing Georgia power. Uh, she's been consistent in, in several of those areas. I, I hear she's now going to be your campaign manager for re-election. Uh, absolutely. The Tea Party, I've been trying over the years <laughs> to get them to support me, but <laughs> they'll do wonders for me in DeKalb. I'm just well, I, I, well, you know, last time I checked, DeKalb is hardly in the paper. And from a local government perspective, that means the CEO is doing a really good job. And, Kevin, let me tell you, the first 6 o'clock a.m., I get my AJC.com. If I'm not on the front page, it's a good day. I just know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> in the morning, every morning. Uh, <laughs> call Greg Bluestein on that one, too. Yeah. <laughs> so that'll be just wait till tomorrow, right? I saw the look on his face. Yeah, I'll, I'll check Tim, what we have planned for tomorrow and let you know. Tim, Tim Valentine is listening to all of you today, and uh, he wants us to know that Abrams has been campaigning through black media outlets and programming. And, of course, he points out, that she's uh, sent out uh, um, mailers. We don't talk enough, Audrey, about the power of black media uh, in, in, in helping shape an election. It's enormous. It is enormous. And remember, I think I'd mentioned earlier that the Democratic Party of Georgia is engaged and they are targeting and they're they're doing their best to bring those voters out right now. But again, I think even if Abrams is doing a lot and I received one of those direct mail pieces and it was very obvious that she was giving John Barrow, whose picture was very small in the corner and Abrams picture was very big on that mailer, um, a strong endorsement and said that his uh, his election was very important. But at the same time, we have to go back to it's a runoff. It's late. It, the holidays, you're engaged in the holidays right now. People are distracted. And one thing I meant to mention, a lot of people are like, we won the big stuff. I don't really need to go out again. We won. What, what's Unless the deal? Unless you're a Democrat. Unless you're a Democrat. Saying, and then the Democrats are like, won, yeah. and that, so that's one of the reasons some of those operatives on the Republican side are saying they believe Democrats are more engaged um, I don't know, Audrey. I think it's a lot like UGA fans uh, late Sunday hoping somehow they were going to be picked fourth in the college football playoff. Uh, I just don't think the Democrats have much of a chance. All right. Um, yeah. Well, we'll we'll see. We don't know yet. Eternal. Yes. All right. We've we've talked about Stacey Abrams uh, throughout the first half of the show, off and on, and uh, she made a surprise surprise appearance at a TED Women's Forum in Palm Springs, California, on Friday. She then went on and did an interview with Politico, and in both of those settings, she made it clear, I I don't think this is big news, it's no surprise, that yes, in fact, Mike, she does have another campaign in her future. She doesn't want to say what it is, and we've talked on this show a little bit about the fact that she could certainly go after Purdue in 2020 or wait for Brian Kemp in 2022, but she's staying engaged and says Georgia is her state. Well, as she should. I mean, you go out and generate 1.9 million votes. Uh, there's no reason for her not to have ambitions or dreams about holding uh, public office again in the state of Georgia. Uh, you have to, in politics, to be successful, you have to fail forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, most politicians I know, the ones we accept, have all had defeats in their careers. Uh, you know, I think about John Isaacson right now, who's the senior most beloved Republican elected official in the state of Georgia. But I remember those years, and you all do too, when he was trying to break through first at the state level in the General Assembly. County Commission first. County Commission, right. You know it better than I do. But he continued to persevere and build consensus. Build, And I remember him sitting in my law office back when he was running against Zell Miller uh, for an hour and a half. This man sitting there trying to get me to be the first Democrat to endorse him for governor. I like Johnny, but no, but uh, <laughs> not at that point. But, you know, you have to fail forward in order to be successful, and you build on every election. And I tell young people, too, young politicians in particular, there's no such thing as a losing campaign. What I would always do, Bill, is have ten objectives. Number one is to get the most votes, but have nine other objectives to engage in a campaign. And even if you get nine out of ten and don't get the one, that's still a successful campaign. Well, do you think she can uh, get get a campaign going again in time? I mean, uh, to run against Isaacson. I mean, is there enough time? Against Purdue. Oh, yeah. But I will say this. Two years is a lifetime yeah. in politics. Just think, two years ago, who would, among us would not have thought we wouldn't be talking about governor-elect Casey Cagle? 
I mean, that's what all the smart people believe. That's what all the well, money— Six months ago. Six months ago, that's right. right. It had to be two years ago. All the smart people under the Gold Dome, all the big checks, were just totally convinced that Casey Kager would be governor-elect today, and uh, he's not a great guy. So we have to wait and see. And things change rapidly. Well, in as a long as the ball's in, as long as the ball's in your court, before I move to other people uh, in the studio, uh, Mike, you're a prominent Democrat. What advice would you be giving Stacey? And are you going to give Stacey Abrams about which office she ought to pursue? Should she make a Senate race, or should she wait for 2022 to go after Brian Kemp? Well, not just to uh, Stacey, you know, she hadn't asked me, but we talked, so maybe we'll talk some point. But the only thing I would say to any candidate, particularly those candidates that came up short, is learn from your failures. So, so uh, Don't hide them. Really introspect yourself. And oftentimes, and I'm speaking to myself, the races I've lost, you know, you always want to look at the external circumstances, but you also have to look internally, too, and say, what is it? that I could have done or do I need to do in the next campaign to, to develop or come up or, or at least end with a more positive result. You know what I love about that comment, Sam? That was essentially no comment but dressed up in really fancy clothing. What was so the question? Well, I, I thought I answered the question. What was the question? <laughs> we have to ask Sam. What, what office he should would she run for? You want so, to, you oh, oh what, what, I mean, it, I, well, there aren't that many. I mean, once you run for governor, I, yeah. right? I mean, it's going to be statewide or on. something in Washington. Well, there was an article where someone was suggesting she should be Speaker of the House. I wanted to know what they were drinking yeah. at All the right. time they wrote she's that. She's earned the right, though. I mean, she's a legitimate contender for yeah. any of those positions, either well, statewide and, or at the yes. federal level. And she knows policy, and she's yeah. very bright, and, and she has ambition. And yeah. she also, I think, is a sincere believer in what we find in most public servants who are successful in the long run, like yourselves. They care about the service. They, they want to make change. She really believes it. Sam? Look, I like Stacey Abrams. She is excellent on policy. She is an important voice for Georgia, and she needs to stay very active. She needs to stay very engaged. Um, I also like the woman who is planning to, in all likelihood, run against Senator Purdue, Teresa Tomlinson. Teresa Tomlinson is almost that, certainly that, going that, to be a candidate. Yeah, the mayor of Columbus. Super and, and dynamic. Different dynamic, but would also engage the Democrat Party. Uh, and I think both of these ladies have uh, great potential future additional so campaigns I, I, in them. I should point out, uh, I think all of you who listen regularly know that we have uh, Teresa and Rusty Paul, Mayor of Sandy Springs, on at, as a duo on uh, once a month on the show, and they're going to be back next week. And uh, Teresa often listens to the show, so if she is listening today, I don't think it's going to surprise her to know that we obviously have finally reached the point where we're going to have to ask her the question that we have not, which is, what are your thoughts about running uh, in 2020? It'll be interesting to see uh, whether she's ready to begin t dipping her toe in the water publicly on that, Kevin. Right. I'm just trying to think of what's behind Sam's idea of mentioning those two names. I mean, he is a shrewd Republican strategist. Well, I, we know that. I want, but here's the thing. <laughs> All right. So, Sam, you, you, well, both you, Mike and Sam, have been CEOs, essentially. You are entitled CEO. Sam is county commission chair. You're essentially the CEO of the county. Um, I think the notion of having a choice between running for U.S. Senate and governor. Uh, in, in terms of simply looking at the job itself without regard to who might run and what the dynamics of a given race are, if you're a Stacey Abrams, wouldn't you rather be the CEO of a state than be one of 100 members of the U.S. Senate, especially if it's quite possible you'll be in the minority party? So I think it depends on what you want to get accomplished. Uh, if you want to change the Voting Rights Act post-Shelby County, oh. then it's the Senate. If you want literally simply the influence and power, governor has much more power than an individual senator. So I think it's got to be worse their passion at that point. Well, I agree. That's that's a great point. And just in terms of the skill set, and Bill, you asked me some. I'll revisit this one more time. Uh, <laughs> the way Georgia is evolving, I just think the pendul pendulum is swinging back from the extremes 
on the right and the left. And beyond electioneering, the key is who will be able to govern. The one thing I know through my own career is you can't ex govern from the left or the extreme left or the extreme right. It's almost impossible in a state this diverse that split almost 50-50. And so what Georgia is really, I think, evolving towards going forward is people like Sam Olins who can govern not based on party affiliation or even ideology, but based on what is in the best interest of the citizens of the state of Georgia. That's where we're going. And that's what those jobs, whether it's the Senate, John Eisen, I'm talking about him a lot because he beat me. So anyway, I, I talk about him a lot. I have a great respect for him. But it's not what Senator Perdue said. It's what Senator Eisenson was quoted in saying over the last seven days to his fellow Republicans, i.e., you're going to have to become more diverse. You're going to have to create a uh, an agenda that's more inclusive of people in the suburbs, that this strategy of just turning out the base in rural Georgia is not a long-term strategy that's going to generate success. You know, to me, that's what's important among the Republican leadership. You know, let, let me make a point on that, Mike, if I may. Uh, Brian Kemp and I, a couple years ago, attended a Galeo meeting, their annual meeting, the Georgia Association of Latino Elected Officials. Weren't a lot of Republicans in that room. We both made comments, and we both made it clear that the Republican Party needed to welcome the diversity actively. About two or three weeks after that was the state Republican Party convention in Augusta, and we were attacked for having been in attendance at the Galeo meeting. So I think at the same time, several folks are criticizing Brian for him being Secretary of State, et cetera. We need to understand also, he was one of the few that would go to that meeting with me and speak on behalf that the state needed, that the Republican Party needed to welcome the diversity. Well, we're about to learn in just about a month whether Brian Kemp understands the message that you're both uh, uh, endorsing here, which is uh, reaching out to a broader and more diverse segment of Georgians. Uh, you cannot stay in your narrow lane if you want to run the entire state. And, uh, Kevin, that's one of the things that your guys at the AJC will be watching. We'll be watching how does Kemp broaden his uh, base and show that he is going to be a governor for all Georgians. Yeah, I, I do think that will be... A really important, interesting thing. I mean, as these politicians know, if you don't win, it doesn't really matter what you think. And Brian Kemp did what he needed to do to win. You know, uh, he won the game he was playing. And if that meant turn out the base and figure out the longer term strategy later, whatever it meant. But if he didn't get in office, nothing else matters. And he found a way to do that. I got to get to a break. But I do want to make a point. It's interesting. We've talked about Johnny Isaacson a couple of times here. Um, Johnny was on the show yesterday to pay oh, tribute to uh, President yeah. Bush 41. And we talked, um, you know, a lot of people are talking now about how, how great uh, uh, George H.W. Bush was at reaching out to people who did not share his political philosophy. And as we're discussing this today, it, it is worth noting, Mike, that Johnny Isaacson and Zell Miller fought a bitter bitter battle for governor in 1990. Johnny lost. Zell uh, went on to be governor for two terms. And who did Johnny, who did Zell Miller reach out to, to become the head of the Georgia's, the school board of the state of Georgia in, at a time when it was troubled? He reached across party lines to his former opponent. And Johnny Isaacson, by all accounts, Sam, did a terrific job in that post. Look, there's nothing that... I don't think Johnny Isaacson does an unbelievable job at. He's one of the best politicians, one of the best forget politicians, statesmen that I've seen in this state the whole time I've been here. All right. We got to get to a break and uh, we will do that now. When we come back, uh, we have a few more items to talk about before we're out of time on Political Rewind. On the next Fresh Air, how the British paper The Guardian partnered with Edward Snowden and WikiLeaks to publish classified documents and the consequences the paper faced. We talk with The Guardian's former editor-in-chief, Alan Rusbridger. His new book, Breaking the News, tells those stories and others and looks at the challenges newspapers face in the digital age. Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 on GPB and gpbnews.org. 
There are many ways to be a leader. Some run big companies. Some serve on the school board or volunteer for causes they care about. Most leaders are regular people who want to make a difference. They do it by supporting what matters to them. I'm Tamara Keith. When you give to public radio, you're supporting reliable journalism. So please, follow your heart and be a leader. Make a year-end gift now. Go to gpb.org and click Donate or call 800-222-4788. Welcome back to uh, Political Rewind. Audrey Haynes, University of Georgia Associate Professor of Political Science, Made the long drive in from Athens. It's great to have you here, Audrey. It's always good to be here. Sam Olins is uh, with us. So is Michael Thurmond and uh, Kevin Riley, the boss of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the editor of the paper. Uh, quick, few quick items that are kind of interesting. Kevin, <laughs> Matt uh, uh, Gertler is a state rep in his, I think, second term, I believe, from uh, Tiger, Georgia, up, up north. He votes against virtually every bill that comes before the state house, and he's been driving Republicans' leadership like they're—he's been driving them crazy. They wanted him out. They tried to get him out of office. He won his reelection campaign. Um, now they're really angry because he was the lone vote against the $500 million bailout to help the people in South Georgia who are struggling through Hurricane Michael. So Gertler says, I do this because I believe it's important to think about how government spends money. I don't want to be a rubber stamp. I don't like more government. But this raises this whole interesting question about whether you can serve in office and be a contrarian your entire tenure. Well, I mean, I think a lot of legislative bodies have that person, and you you can find yes. it. And uh, I, it's always frustrating to leadership, uh, especially on a close vote. It's not like they needed his vote on this one. I think it'll be more interesting to see when they get something that's very tight, uh, and, and he seems to. Uh, but, I mean, there are a lot of people in the legislature we don't hear about. Have you two had yes. uh, members? Have you had a Cobb County Commission? Have you had anybody in the DeKalb County? Do you deal with people like that? They're over great here? for us in the media, by the way. Yeah. Yes, but the name... I'm not asking you to name them. I just want to know what it's like to govern yeah, when you're working with that kind of person. Yeah, but your fellow colleagues won't go down with that individual. Right, right. Well, and, and to be fair, uh, you elected, and this is who the people actually sent to represent yes. them. And I, I was looking at his Facebook page the other day. He has a lot of people who are, you know, go, Gertler. I, I predict he's going to be a verb or a noun. I got Gertlered. Or, <laughs> yeah, and That's I don't a know this guy, but I'm just yeah. speaking more, you know, holistically. Uh, the people have a right to elect a contrarian if, in fact— that's who or that is what they want to uh, have represented. Those are the positions they take. I think that's the most important thing we could possibly say is we all have the right to vote for the person we want without regard to how they're viewed by the leadership in a given body or, or whatever. Thank you for saying that. And this thing, our president, key to his success is that there were people who voted for him because— he took positions that were in contradiction with not just Democrats, but also Republican leaders. And there are people out there who say a pox on the entire system and they are angry with it and they want to put the thumb in the eye of the political set, whoever they may be, red or blue. All right. We've only got a couple uh, more minutes left. By the way, uh, because we're running short on time, uh, we talked at the very top of the show about uh, Doug Collins, who has been pushing a criminal justice reform bill in uh, Congress, hopes he can get it through, but this, the U.S. Senate is giving him fits on that one. So we're going to park that. We'll talk about it on tomorrow's show, uh, which is too bad because with you here. No, you know what, Sam? You're here. You're an attorney general. We should hear what you have to say about this. So let me give you a second to talk about it. This is a bill modeled quite closely after what Nathan Deal has do done in two terms as governor. So I don't think there's anything that our governor has done better than the legislation on criminal justice reform. Huge, 18% reduction in the number of prisoners, 25% reduction in the number of African-American prisoners, 
major, major advancements for our state. And Doug Collins is a class act. He is a really good guy. I was really happy to see that he got the ranking member chair for the for that committee. I think it's really vital that uh, Congress pass that bill now. And and it's being held up in the Senate in part because Tom Cotton is right. a, is is vehemently opposed to it, and Mitch McConnell has expressed no interest in uh, moving it forward. Well, the issue is interesting because it is the it appears at times to be the one and only thing both sides can agree on. Come at it differently. You know, for different reasons, often the Republican conservative view is we just can't spend this kind of money to imprison people and and just keep building prisons. And then on a Democratic liberal side, it's more the, hey, we are throwing too many people in jail. We are not giving them the opportunity. So even though they, you know, we need in a way the country needs us because it'd be nice to have at least one thing. That can happen in Congress, and we absolutely can. We must end this plague of mass incarceration. Uh, It's been devastating to low-income and minority communities in terms of family dislocation, dissolution, the impact, the cost that you mentioned. But it's the human cost is even greater than the actual cost of particularly as it relates to low-level, nonviolent offenses. Um, he, he, well, go I, ahead. I was going to say, too, you know, given the nature of this congressional session, you know, a lot of people, Republicans and Democrats, would like to close out the year with something positive. And there are a lot of things that are going on that are not very positive right now. Um, this might be something that they can take home, especially those who are retiring, be beneficial. Yeah, I want you to mention something on air that you shared with myself and the professor. Yes. Is that Athens has become the new political center of the universe for the state of Georgia. I didn't. Oh, didn't so, realize I'd said that. Yes, you actually <laughs> said it. So with the governor-elect, we yeah. could have a secretary of state. So that is uh, Chuck Bullock. Other people will be there. And it makes a difference in Georgia as to what city or county the governor <laughs> actually Lives in. All right. Uh, There's I, a $90 million inland port opening in Gainesville. Yeah, thanks soon. to Nathan <laughs> Neal. Nathan Just Neal. so happened to be opening in Gainesville. Come on, Brian Kemp. Bring uh, it home. Uh, it, we're out of time. <laughs> we're out of time. Let me mention one more item about uh, about this uh, 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 bill, this criminal justice bill. You pointed out Doug Collins won the position as ranking member of judiciary. In that role, he will be President Trump's biggest defender on the Hill when Republic, when Democrats take over control of the House. And yet, President Trump has now uh, backed away a little bit from what was his initial support of Collins' measure. I think if I were the president, I'd get back in there and help Doug Collins all I can. <laughs> He's one of our best congressmen. He, Very smart. He, he is a really good guy. All right. We are completely out of time on today's show. Uh, thank you, Kevin Riley. We love having you here, Sam Olins, um, and Audrey Haynes and Mike Thurman. It's so nice to have two people from the center of Georgia's political universe in the studio for today's show. We'll be back with another live show tomorrow. It will be coming to you right after the funeral uh, at National Cathedral for George H.W. Bush. And we'll talk a little more about his legacy. And then don't forget, Friday, uh, we'll replay my conversation with uh, the great John Meacham, who is uh, one of the eulogists at the funeral. And that'll be coming up on Friday's 2 o'clock show. I'm Bill Nygut. See you all tomorrow.